Great to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Today is November 2nd, 2022. And today's webinar is a, the second part of a series titled How to Start Anti-Racist Ministries. And so today we have a very special guest speaker. And as you listen to Pastor Robert Johnson, please make sure you share your questions in the chat or in the Q&A box, and we'll discuss them at the end of today's webinar. As a reminder, the goal of our webinar is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip you, to support you as you integrate anti-racism into your ministry and into your lives. And because we believe anti-racism is an act of discipleship, we believe this is how we love God and how we love neighbor. My name is Erwin Lopez. I'm a member of the Beloved Community Leadership Team alongside the, anti the Bishop's Anti-Racism Task Force. And today we have a very special guest returning with us. And I asked Pastor Robert to return because I just loved his practical application. I loved the experience that he has. And I just felt like you can take his, his talk, you can take his webinar and really just apply it the next day, the next moment, because he has so many years of practical ministry ex experience. As a reminder, Pastor Robert was born and raised in Columbia, Mississippi. He's currently the pastor of St. Mark United Methodist Church in Wichita, Kansas, which I also love, a friend from another <laughs> district doing ministry from another conference. So I also love that. He served as a pastor for more than 25 years in a variety of ministry contexts, including inner city, suburban, rural, college towns, college campus ministries, cross-cultural, cross-racial, startup churches and assistant living facilities, large churches, and even mega churches. Um, he has a bachelor's in psychology from the University of Southern Mississippi, and he has an MDiv from the Perkins School of the Theology at Southern Methodist University. So without further ado, Pastor Robert is going to talk to us today about how to start anti-racist ministries. Well, hello. Hello. It's good to be back. Erwin, thank you for inviting me back. This is a passion of mine. Of course, I grew up in, in Southern Mississippi, and I'll, I'll say more about why I designate Southern Mississippi, I, I Central Mississippi, why that's important, because I think that it probably triggers some attention to say that I'm from Mississippi, but then to say that I'm from Central, South Central Mississippi, I'll explain the significance of that in a moment. So uh, I grew up with a deep race consciousness because of where I grew up. I was born and raised then I lived in Houston, Texas for 27 years, which is one of the most racially and ethnically diverse cities in the country. Uh, my wife and I lived there for 27 years. And then we moved to the Midwest, the rural Midwest, to Wichita, Kansas, six years ago uh, when I came to serve as the lead servant at St. Mark United Methodist Church here, here in Wichita. So I've kind of lived in various places. I lived some time in Dallas. So I've kind of been in different cultures and had the, the, the beautiful opportunity to experience different parts of the country, different cultures. So Texas is South and Mississippi is South, but the Southwest and the Deep South are radically different. And then Texas is the Southwest, Kansas is the Midwest, but they are radically different. So I bring all of that with me to our conversation today because everywhere I've gone, I've had the chance coming from Mississippi, I've had, with a race consciousness, I pay attention to the dynamics of race. And I am particularly concerned right now. I am so grateful that I have the opportunity to talk with you all today because I am deeply concerned about the state of race relations in our country. Uh, I am 56 and 
it seems to me that race relations are getting worse. And the evil that we saw in the, that was present in the 60s, I was born in 66, so I can't say I saw it, but the evil that was a part that, that, was, that created uh, that cause that was a catalyst for the civil rights movement, that evil has not gone away. It simply has changed forms. Energy, if we want to talk physics, we know that, that energy doesn't, isn't created and it doesn't go away. It just changes form. So the energy that was behind a lot of the Jim Crow uh, segregation, the lynching, uh, the violent uh, attacks on black people in the South, uh, that energy hasn't gone away, it's changed forms. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is what form does that evil take today? I do wanna share with you and give me one second. I want, I need to close my door. Erwin, just give me one second. No problem, no problem, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So uh, I do want to share with you all just one thing, uh, a resource, and it's this. And uh, that's just, this is a graphic that was created for an on-campus deal I'm doing. So ignore the details about the location. The books are, it's the book, Jesus Unchained. I want to hold that book up to you. This was a book that I wrote that was published back in April uh, of this year. And I hold that up as a resource only because I want to uh, offer it to you as a way of addressing racism, race relations, racial divisions, as well as other social problems from a lens of Jesus. So as a believer, so I'll tell you about me, I am a deeply committed follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord for me. Jesus Christ is the paradigm for what it means to be human. And he is uh, the decisive revelation of the eternal God for me. So, and I am, I have my, I have committed my life to following Jesus and being his disciple and uh, uh, helping other people to connect to him. But in that, that's not just religion. Uh, it's not primarily religion for me. It's a way of life. So that I've learned over time, it's took me time to intentionally apply what I learn and what I understand about Jesus to how I make decisions about everyday life. And I don't mean private decisions only. So the what would Jesus do? I'm talking about something more than that. I'm talking about how we address grand social problems through the lens of Jesus. And I think there are tons of things that we can learn from Jesus that are right there in scripture. We don't see them because we misread scripture in so many ways, but they are right there and the core of that, and and here we go. So here's we get to practical points in dealing with race, racial division, race relations, is what I learned. The core thing that I learned from Jesus is his intentional focus on every person's humanity, his absolute refusal to judge or assess people by their labels but to dig into the humanity of every person, whether that person came to him or whether that person was referred, was talked about to, to him from someone else that he kept seeing people's humanity. So let me give you a couple of stories that I think demonstrate that. So a woman comes to the synagogue one day in a local village and she walks in, she's bent over, she has a physical deformity 
and the religious leaders basically ignore her. She's almost, the, the way the scripture reads, it's almost like she's a pest. And Jesus starts to engage her and tells her to stand up. And she, for the, she's been bent, bent over, the Bible says, for 18 years. And she stands up and Jesus calls her daughter of Abraham. So you read that story. And if you know anything about the context and culture, you know that number one, because of her physical deformity, it was assessed by her community that she was in that condition because something of either she or her parents had sinned. Somebody had sinned, she deserved to be in that condition. If uh, whatever status into which you were born, part of that culture is that that was the status you remain. So if she's born, if she's bent over, then that's her status of life. That's not our responsibility. We don't have anything to do with do with that. And then that was just kind of, uh, we don't even have to show compassion. If she shows up to the synagogue, that's fine, but we're not, we don't owe her anything. But then Jesus actually pays attention to her. So that's, there we go. He pays attention to her. He sees her humanity. He brings supernatural healing. And so that's another piece. I don't want to get into the supernatural. That's another conversation, Erwin. He sees her humanity. He pays attention. He sees her humanity. And then he refers to her with a with a term a term of of, of uh, dignity and and status. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. So Jesus takes a woman that the society has basically rejected, cast away, decided that she's not worth worthy even of compassion, and Jesus says, "No, she's a daughter of Abraham." That story gets repeated in the Gospels through Jesus over and over and over again. So I want to encourage you all, go read the Gospels again and look for that. He does it with Zacchaeus. He does it with the Roman uh, uh, soldier over and over again. These people, he does it with the Syrophoenician woman. These people who are outcasts, these people who their village, their society, the culture would basically had disparaged and, and dismissed Jesus sees their humanity and affirms them and enters into relationship with them. And through that sin of their humanity, uh, through that affirming of their humanity, these people come alive in ways that they had not been alive before. So the takeaway from that, this for me is that the key in building, in healing the racial divide, in building better relationships, is each one of us has to practice the craft, the art of seeing and valuing the humanity of every person, especially the person with whom you disagree. So this is the second concept. So valuing the learning to value people's humanity, practice that like a, as a spiritual discipline. In the same way that I would take a week and say, "Hey, okay, I'm gonna fit, I'm gonna fast from food this week." Uh, I say that I'm going to take a week and I'm going to practice a spiritual discipline of praying 12 times a day, or I'm going to practice a spiritual discipline of uh, of making sure that I don't let nothing, anything negative come out of my mouth. Just all the ways we practice these spiritual disciplines that strengthen our souls, that draw us closer to God. Practice this as a spiritual discipline, that every person you encounter for the rest of this day, that you pay attention, that you you choose to see their humanity. And if you get a chance, you, you get to affirm that humanity, you affirm that value as a human being, that you do that. So that's for, and then here's the second one, especially do that with people for, 
who for you are strangers, okay? Because there is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, whether we're talking about the First Testament or the Second Testament, whether we're talking about the story of the of the Israelites, or whether we're talking about the story of the new of the of the of the Christ community in the new, in, in the Second Testament, that there's a consistent theme is how do you treat the stranger? That authentic Judaic Christian faith doesn't really we don't begin we don't we're not practicing that until we're able to love people who are outside of our boundaries who are on the other side who are across the tracks who are strange and weird to us leaning into that and learning to value those people not until we do that are we really practicing christian faith are we really following jesus is learning to do to love the stranger and that means anybody who's different from me, whether they, they can be different politically, they can be different geographically, they can be different in how they talk, they can be different in their value systems, or they can be different racially. But people for who, for, who are strangers to me in some kind of way, that I practice the Christian discipline of seeing their, paying attention, seeing their humanity, and value in their humanity. All right. So that's the that's my core practice. We we deal with that in the book to a great deal. Although the book is focused on, I'm trying to tell a story about Jesus. I'm trying to uh, in the book we try to rescue Jesus from a lot of distortions and idolatries and show him for who he is, so that people can see what I'm talking about now. So I don't get as much into what I'm talking about now. I I try to free Jesus from distortions. Tell talk about who he really is as portrayed in the Gospels so that then we can see what I'm talking about today. And that is that he saw people's and valued people's humanity. And then he taught us to do that with the stranger. That's why you get these stories of Jesus going straight through Samaria. He's a Jew. They thought Samaritans were unclean, but the Bible says he's, he goes straight down through the middle of Samaria and runs, runs into, not only does he go through Samaria, runs into a colony of lepers. <laughs> he runs into a colony of lepers. And the lepers are at a distance, and they're crying out, "Son of God, have son of son, uh, David, son of mercy, have mercy upon son of David, have mercy upon us." And Jesus pays attention, sees their humanity, values their humanity, affirms their humanity, and says, "Go show yourselves to the priests." And other, and he pre releases this supernatural healing to them. So these stories of Jesus pushing beneath, pushing beyond the boundaries, pushing beyond the labels pushing beyond the beyond the strangeness of others to see that to pay attention to their humanity value their humanity and and affirm their humanity so let me stop there and now i want to just see if we can engage in some open q a and dialogue okay great if you have any questions for pastor robert go ahead and put them in the q a but i'd like to start with some questions for you pastor robert <clears throat> let me ask you um a lot of the folks who are coming to our webinars are pastors or their lay leaders. And as they begin to engage in the anti-racism work, we realize that a lot of folks are still in the awareness level. A lot of folks still are not in the practice level. And I guess my first question for you is, where should they start? What would be a good starting point? So helping people to understand, to become aware of the problem of the racial violence, and I and I appreciate you answering that question because a lot of people, part of what I run into is not 
how to heal it, but people even denying that it exists, denying that it's a reality. And by the way, I run into that kind of mindset very strongly among African-Americans in the Midwest, in in the rural Midwest. And rural Midwest is Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa. That's the rural Midwest. You run into that a lot. Uh, and so here, here, very, let's let me be let me be super practical. Here's one way that that people can can become aware of the racial narrative of America. Okay, go see the movie Till. Go see that movie. Let me see if I can share screen and maybe. <laughs> okay, I don't want to. Let me not. Okay, let me not do it. I'll, I'll try to. While you're asking the question, I'll see if I can find it. Go see the movie. It is the movie about Emmett Till, this young 14-year-old kid who leaves Chicago, goes to Mississippi to visit relatives. Uh, this incident happens in the store. He ends up being lynched, murdered by a group of white men in a small town in, in the delta of Mississippi. You could do you could you could learn a whole lot about racial history in America by just doing a study of the Delta, Mississippi Delta. And then his mom finds out and the whole story. His body is is gravely deformed, his face, and she does this open casket funeral because she says, I want the world to see what they did to my son. But here's the other thing that, that that's very powerful in the movie. She says, she says in a speech that she makes that before this happened to her son, she thought, and y'all get this, she thought that racism, racial ugliness was something that happened to other people that didn't have anything to do with her. But then when it happened to her son, she became aware of how America as a whole was filled with it. So unfortunately, sometimes things don't really, people people don't awaken to stuff, even if it's happening to people that same racial color. They don't be, they don't, they're not aware of it until it happens to them. So that's one way, go see that movie. That movie tells you, you cannot, you should not tell the American story without including the story of Emmett Till. And the, and that story is paradigmatic because it is a story that's repeated hundreds of thousands of times. It just so happens that his story got picked up by the national media and became a national, became a global story. But make no mistake about it, that story happened over and over thousands of times in the state of Mississippi. Uh, I, as a kid, a decade after that happens, maybe 12 years after that happened, I'm a kid in the 70s, and my dad talks to me and my brother about how we behave in public and tells us the story of Emmett Till. Now, of course, I had never heard the story, and I didn't, the story didn't really make sense to me, but that kind of consciousness, because that kind of thing happened all the time. Uh, so, so that's one way that people can we can make people aware is find cultural find movies, find cultural opportunities to point them to so that they can go experience it in a way that they both experience art, they experience experience entertainment, but they get to see a truth, see truth in a way that they normally wouldn't look at it. I don't think that the best way to to try to address the issue of race, make get people to own it is simply by sitting in a room doing diversity, equity and inclusion training because people go into those settings with their walls up and determined to not let them down. I try to send people into context where they go in, not with their walls up, but with a kind of openness, and then they get exposed to certain kinds of truth. And 
If I were president, Erwin, I would mandate and pay for every American citizen to go see the movie till and then let's talk about it. Yeah, I love that kind of practical advice of one of the first steps of <clears throat> participating in anti-racism ministry is helping your congregation become aware of the, the racial situation, not only in our nation, but in their communities and do so with movies. And also with your book, you always talk about, make sure you use the language of scripture, make sure you use the language of scripture, the language of Jesus. Um, and yes. another, another question that I have in mind, it's a two-part question, specifically for some of the pastors who are here. Um, you, can, you can speak from a cross-cultural appointment perspective. Um, how do you, do you start anti-racism ministries as a, a Black man, a Black pastor in a white setting or as a, a, a minority person in a white setting? So that's part one of the question. The second question I have okay. for you is, what about a white pastor? male or female trying to lead their congregation to conversations of anti-racism? Like what kind of advice would you have for them? So again, I think one of the, I, I am not a big fan of doing a lot of, I mean, we have to do some of it. I'm not a big fan of leaning mostly on classroom style interactions. I think that those are important. But what I've learned about those kinds of contexts is that people come into them with that with walls up, with bear with mental barriers up. That I try to expose people to truth in unexpected ways. Uh, so let me let, let me give you an let me give let, let me give you a biblical example. So David commits sin with Bathsheba, kills Uriah, and is sitting in secrecy and privacy and arrogance. And this prophet Jonathan knows that he has been sent by God to, to speak truth to power. But Jonathan has enough sense to know that if I go in and just blatantly say, David, this is what you did and you are wrong, who, you know, he, you know I'm, I may get killed for doing that. So he goes in and tells a story about something else. Tells a story about a sheep and a man who has one sheep on another. And David gets caught up in this story and jumps up and says, that can't happen in my kingdom. Who is this man? We got to deal with this guy. And and then Jonathan says, David, that's what you did. So the, the wisdom of that story is that we've got to find ways to pull a Jonathan on people. <laughs> we've got to find ways to pull a Jonathan on people to, to, to expose people to truth without head-on conversations. I said to someone this morning that, that most of our conversations, when you attempt to communicate, period, attempting to communicate is like casting a stone into the ocean and hoping that a whale sees it. Casting a stone into an ocean and hoping that a whale sees it. And so dealing with racism, whether you're talking about as a as a as an Anglo pastor or as an African American pastor in a cross cultural context, attempting to communicate about that is like casting a stone into an ocean and hoping that a whale will see it. So how do you get the whale to see the stone? Like if you were to strategize about that. And so we have to learn how we have to figure out how to have how to get people how to expose people to truth in ways when they're open and when they're 
um, when they're not guarded and then have conversations around that. Uh, that's 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 the that's the best way to do it. And and so uh, so let's talk. What, how can how can, if you're leading a congregation, how do you do that? So I think one way to do that is to do mission projects together. Not not mission projects in another part of the world. Find a place in your city where people are hurting, and gather the people in your church, and go engage in some kind of mission project. It could be a trunk or treat party. It could be setting up a blood uh, bank, uh, 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 you know, where people can come and give blood. If you're in an African-American community, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a scarcity of, of, uh, of blood for people with sickle cell anemia. Like go to a broken place with people in your church and serve together because almost nothing changes people or opens people up than exposure to pain with people who share their values and the learning that comes from that. So that's a very practical way to engage in mission together. And then again, find cultural opportunities, entertainment, uh, whether that movies, plays, and go see those things, go experience those things together and create conversation around them so that people don't feel like they're necessarily talking about race, they're talking about a movie. But of course, if you go see, if you go see Teal, the issue of race is there, but it, it addresses the issue of Emmett Till from a mother's perspective. So Emmett Till could have been Vietnamese. So let's suppose there's a Vietnamese mother and this happens to your child and the profound grief that comes out of that, everybody can identify with that. So then you begin with that very common human thing and then you, you, you lodge in or begin to target in on the issue of race. So those are two ways, like doing mission together and then sharing together in cultural entertainment opportunities where people can go into these experiences with open hearts and open minds and then you do post-conversation. I appreciate that. You know, what I hear you saying for me is be creative. Mm -hmm. Be creative in, in the way you communicate verbally but also be creative in how you communicate that message. You can use film and, you know, just use your imagination type thing and kind of avoid yes. those head on collisions, yes. you know, yes. and try to come at a diff different angle. So I appreciate that. Um, yes. Yes. We have That's a question. Friend, you say if I, if I were to, hold, if I set up here in Wichita, if I go over to Wichita State University and set up a class and say, I'm going to do a class on healing the racial divide, nobody's going to show up. <laughs> but if I go to Wichita State and I say, have a class on, uh, you know, what's going on in the hearts, like, you know, what's going on in the hearts of young adults in our city, I'll get some folks to show up. It may not be a large crowd, but if somebody, some people will show up. And then I expose them to young adults and just let young adults talk. Well, if I let young adults talk, some of them are going to talk about what they're experiencing racially. And then that becomes a conversation that we can have then. So finding creative ways to get to that place, uh, because the head on stuff, typically people know how to how to protect themselves, guard themselves in those kinds of conversations. That's great advice. I really feel like that's great advice. Uh, we have a question from a participant. His name is Kobe Gallier. Um, and he shared, he has a question, he says, I'm interested in starting a reading group at my church that centers diverse voices. 
over against straight white males. But fear, the only people that would engage are those who are already aware. Thoughts and advice, this is kind of like what we've been talking about. Yeah, I, that's, so the goal is great, but you gotta totally change your language. Cause if you use the language, and I know you may just be talking to us, and so that may not be the language you use, but uh, number one is that I don't think, if you use any reference to, to white males, uh, da, 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 that that's not gonna is that that's gonna end up being more divisive than anything. But the question is, how do I creatively get these people into a conversation so that, it, and it may it's a journey. You, you it may take you a few weeks to get to the place where you really want to be. But we get to a place so that we can begin to address helping the white men of our congregation to learn to value the humanity of other people, which is another way of saying that helping the white males of our congregation to learn to see the world from the view from the perspective of other people which in many in not all, not all not in all cases in many cases white males have been at the top of society when you're at the top of the society you you don't have to engage in the in the art the hard work the discipline of looking at the world through other people's eyes to try to figure out how to fit in because you kind of own the world uh, but i grew up as an african-american male i've spent my whole life trying to figure out how do I see the world from other, from up from white people's perspective, so that I can then build bridges and 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 fit into their context and be a part of the United Methodist Church and be a part and fit in at the University of Southern Mississippi and fit in at my predominantly white high school. So my whole life I've been having to try to figure out how other people think so that I could fit in. And some people have never they haven't had to do that racially and socially. They've had to do it within their family, with their children and their grandkids and their brothers, and but not from a social perspective. So you you got to change your language, and then I wouldn't set it up as a white male versus versus everybody else. I would set it up as a human conversation about what it means to be human, and then what are the practices that cultivate our humanity, and you can learn those from Jesus. What are the practices that cultivate our humanity? And let's engage in a conversation about how we engage those practices, uh, no matter no uh, no matter what our racial or socioeconomic status may be. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Um, I know Pastor Colby too, and I think that very helpful for him. Um, I have a que one last question for you. I see that Vivian is looks like she might be typing a question, but I have a question for you. In my ministry, we have a, a feeding program. I do college ministry and we just feed college students. And we have about 100, 200 students who just come and eat, right? And when they're there, we begin to tell them that we're also a nonprofit organization and that if they ever find themselves in financial distress, that we can help them and provide grants. And then that's the way that we build relationships with the community. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus fed people, you know, something just as simple as that. Jesus made sure that everybody had enough to eat. Also inspired by Martin Luther King's beloved community, making sure everybody had enough to eat and had shelter. But another reason why we do that is because I believe that is one of the most anti-racist things, ministries that we do on our campus. And I was talking to one of my college students and I said, this is an anti-racist ministry. And she said, what? No, it's not. And so what I realized is that we fail to see that a lot of the ministries that, um, we do, we have done, a lot of these organizations are engaged in anti-racist ministries. 
So what characteristics would you say are in an anti-racist ministry? Because for me, feeding people, finding yes. that, you know, trying to build that, that trying to, you know, end that um, inequity by yes. giving resources to people, making them aware. And so you see what I'm saying? What kind of characteristics do you think we present anti-racist ministries? So people can know, like, we're doing this work. And, and, right. and if we have to be creative, then we can do this and it's anti-racist and our congregation isn't going to think we're against each other type thing. So, yeah, great question. So I think that we have to determine whether or not our, our anti-racism, anti-racism work is going to be implicit or explicit. So uh, there are some people that their calling in the kingdom is to speak truth to power. It's prophetic. It's head on. It's head-on conflict it's it's speaking hard truth to people in power about the issue of race or whatever the issue and in this case we're talking racism it could be any issue of injustice or inhumanity so that but then there are other people who their calling is to build bridges of understanding that's a different kind of approach then there are other people that their approach is okay i don't try to call people out. I don't, you know, they don't get on Facebook and, and, and try to change the world by speaking hard truth to people. Their thing is I'm involved in advocacy. I work with uh, advocacy groups and we try to put pressure on on a decision maker, legislators and decision makers so that they would create more just systems so that our city, our community would be a more just place. So there are multiple inlets into the issue of anti-racism. And I think we we have to know ourselves well enough to know, I try to know ourselves well enough to know what does God want me? What like how how do I fit into this? Am I a truth teller? Am I am I a prophetic voice? Or am I a systems changer? Or am I a bridge builder? Am I a facilitator of of uh, of conversations in the community? Or am I doing mission work that my the very essence of my mission work unsettles? and undermines the, the the systemic racism of my community. So there are multiple ways to do that, and we have to decide uh, what that is, and then do that, and then not be not criticize other people of how they do it, like the, uh, but, and then I want, my second piece, I want to say this is, no matter where we fit, no matter what inlet we use to attack this issue, all of us have to radically practice the art of of valuing the stranger, valuing the humanity of other people and practicing that spiritual discipline. Here's why that's important. Because unless, until I become aware of how I devalue people for whatever reasons, it may not be race, uh, but it may be when I smell weed on kids and how I act towards them, right? So I, I'm, I'm around a bunch of young adults and I smell weed, the, my facial reactions and everything. So in other words, I'm basically saying that I don't need to value these people humanity because I'm disgusted with the smell of weed on them. Or maybe their pants hanging or whatever is being aware of that because that's going to do two things. Number one is that's going to turn the mirror back on me and help me to see how I engage in these practices of inhumanity myself. And then if I understand why I do it, then maybe I can understand better why other people treat me that way on the basis of race. And then if I can understand better why they, what they feel, how they are thinking, 
then it helps me to know how to how to attack it. Do I need to attack it head, head on? Do I need to have a hard face-to-face -face conflict conversation? Or is this a matter of building a bridge? Or is this a matter of this person is just a part of this system and maybe I need to work on the system and community of the community in which they live, the systemic racism or whatever, and address it that way. So those are two quick things. I wish I had time to talk about each one of them for an hour, but there you go. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It actually reminds me of uh, Howard Thurman. And yes. one of the things that Howard, I was inspired by Howard Thurman is that he would say, I don't feel called to march, he says. Right. I feel called to ask the marchers, why are they marching? <laughs> and for me, I was, you know, in, in my life, in my ministry, help me find my place. Like, find your role, find your place. It doesn't have to look like everybody else, but it, yes. it, how are you engaging in this work? So I appreciate your, um, your Great time, quote, your Dr. wisdom, Thank and your experience. Yeah. Thank you for that quote, yes. Well, we're going to end here um, to respect everybody's time. Thank you so much for everybody for tuning in. Uh, we're excited because next month also we're going to continue our conversation and we're going to be celebrating ministries from the East Central District. I want to encourage you to check out Pastor Robert's book. If you want a free copy, we'll get you a free copy. Um, I really love his approach of being wise with your words and making sure that you're communicating this message and it doesn't get lost through some of the aggressive vocabulary that we tend to, to use or, or people perceive. Um, so I really appreciate his perspective. And with that said, thank you all so much for tuning in. And if you have any questions, we'll follow up with an email and make sure to email us or uh, get to us. And we love you and continue the good work. And we'll see you all next month. Thank you, Pastor Robert. Thank you. So joy.